This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome, everyone. I'm thrilled to welcome you to this evening's session of our mini-med school course, uh, Health Policy in 2022, Restoring the Health and Well-Being of Californians. I'm Beth Griffiths, and I serve as co-associate director for policy programs at the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF. Over the course of the next several weeks, we'll look at how COVID-19 has affected so many aspects of our lives and how policymakers can be guided by evidence from leading health policy researchers to address some of the problems that COVID has revealed and exacerbated. Tonight, it's my great pleasure to introduce this evening's guest speaker, Dr. Hilary Seligman, and to moderate the question and answer session afterward. Dr. Seligman is Professor of Medicine and of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF. She directs the Food Policy, Health, and Hunger Research Program at UCSF's Center for Vulnerable Populations, and she also directs the CDC's Nutrition and Obesity Policy Research and Evaluation Network. She conducts research and policy evaluation focused on federal nutrition programs, food banking and the charitable food network, food affordability and access, and income-related drivers of food choice. In addition, she directs UCSF's National Clinician Scholars Program. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Dr. Seligman for tonight's session entitled Food and Nutrition Security, Effective and Emerging Policies and Practices. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Griffiths. I'm really happy to be here tonight to talk about uh, my topic area of interest, which is food and nutrition security. I'm going to try to touch on a smattering of different um, um, policies and initiatives that are capturing the attention of policymakers and researchers right now. I'm going to start by um, level setting. One in nine U.S. households reported being food insecure in 2020, about 10.5%. And among these 10.5% of households that reported food insecurity in 2020, about 6.6% of them reported having low food security. And in a low food secure household in general, because of a very constrained food budget or not enough money for food, Households generally have to sacrifice the quality of the foods they purchase and eat in order to make ends meet. In households with very low food insecurity, which is about 3.9% of the U.S. population, households have to both change the quality of the food they eat, so decrease the quality of food that they eat in order to adhere to a really constrained food budget, but they also have to reduce the quantity of food that they eat by either reducing the size of their meals, skipping meals, not eating for the entire day. Now, in 2020, the expectation and the media reports um, suggested that food insecurity rates had skyrocketed. And indeed, we saw photos in the um, popular press of um, people lining up for miles and miles at food pantries, many stories of people going hungry. And when we look at the um, not the food insecurity numbers in comparison to 2020, in comparison to 2019, at least when we look from 2019 to 2020, there actually, we saw no difference in food security rates in the United States, which causes us to stop and wonder, at least from December of 2019 to December of 2020, we did not see, at least on the national level, with the same surveillance that we've been using since the mid-90s, we didn't see a change in food security rates. So what happened? What made the difference? And I'm going to argue to you tonight that the policies and the programs that we have in place and that were able to be really rapidly scaled and disseminated into communities in the U.S., are really what protected people from much higher rates of food insecurity uh, than, than they otherwise would have seen with the recession that accompanied the pandemic. The other thing that I think it's important to, uh, to observe in the graph I have up here is that high food insecurity rates are not unique at all, um, even to economic, uh, economic downturns. No matter when we go back in history since the beginning of our um, documentation of food insecurity rates every year, the rate of food insecurity has fluctuated between about 10% and 14% every year. This is the baseline rate of food insecurity in the U.S. What this relatively constant rate of food insecurity in the U.S. 
obscures is the fact that there are enormous differences, um, particularly by race, but also by some other sociodemographic characteristics uh, with black and Latino households and households that uh, other households that do not identify as white experiencing much, much higher rates of food insecurity than white households. And we might talk a little bit about what systemic forms and structural forms of racism have, have um, culminated in this pattern of food insecurity in the U.S. What this graph also doesn't show is the rates of food insecurity in other population groups that we, for whom we know food insecurity rates are very, very high, particularly Native Americans. And in the Bay Area, uh, many Asian subpopulations, particularly those who are first-generation immigrants, also experience very high rates of food insecurity. And importantly, as the um, economy uh, starts to recover from economic recessions, such as the one we're see we have seen with the pandemic, or historical uh, recessions like the Great Recession, it is the black and brown households that recover this most slowly. And that just exacerbates disparities that we see um, in rates of food insecurity by race. And again, we are seeing that, that rates of food insecurity have essentially returned to normal for white populations, but many segments of the population are being left behind. Now, the USDA under Secretary Vilsack has um, initiated an entirely new uh, way of talking about food insecurity over the last six months. Um, and this is really um, creating or popularizing this new term of nutrition security, which the USDA is now defining as the concept of food, food security but that puts a renewed emphasis on diet quality and equity. And they're shorthand for this. And I think this is really important because we're talking about food security today in the context of health outcomes. The shorthand way of thinking about it is food security uh, is having enough calories and nutrition security is also having the right calories. Now forever, food security has been understood to be um, access to uh, meals that will make you healthy, but the construct of nutrition security really elevates the importance of high quality foods, which are often more expensive than ultra processed foods, uh, in, in the need to transform our food ecosystem so that they allow people to optimize their health and wellness. So this is what some people have called the dietary divide. Um, we know that there are very high rates of food insecurity in the U.S., and these are persistent decade after decade. We know that access to healthy food is really difficult, both because of the high cost of healthy food and because in certain neighborhoods, like rural areas and particularly black neighborhoods within urban areas, there's a lack of access to high quality uh, fresh foods in particular. We know that decreased levels of purchasing of healthy foods means that people are eating fewer healthy foods. And in um, California in particular, one in five low-income households report zero weekly purchases of fruits and vegetables. And it's not surprising that these patterns of dietary intake would predispose people to chronic disease. Poor diet is actually the number one cause of death in the U.S. And so you can imagine if low-income populations have a poor quality diet, that it would also predispose them to higher levels of chronic disease. And indeed, that's what we see. And when we add up the healthcare costs associated with poor diets in the U.S., this is across all populations, um, the, the most recent estimates suggest that there are 50 billion U.S. healthcare dollars per year are attributable to poor diet. At the same time, uh, it's estimated that a one-portion increase in fruits and vegetables per day could lead to a $5 billion savings in medical costs. And so the, the question becomes, why are we not investing more in healthy dietary intake, both because it makes people feel good, but also because of the potential for it to make people healthier and save society and healthcare costs. And that's really what we're gonna to focus today. And another way of thinking about it is how might we need to realign social care and healthcare in the United States? And I'm gonna talk you through this graph for just a second. 
What you can see in this graph in the light blue bars is that the U.S. spends way more money on healthcare than other countries and other developed nations in the world, and way less, relatively speaking, on what is termed here social care. So there is a bit of a mismatch between what we spend on healthcare dollars and what we spend on social care. And what that really means is that the lack of investment in upstream social determinants of health is what is resulting in increased healthcare costs downstream. Uh, and so the question from a diet and a food security perspective is what policies might we put into place that could help realign this in a way that's more consistent with, our, with other developed nations and that might ultimately result in a healthier nation. And what that means is that we are moving um, what we call upstream, moving, moving some of our investment from providing clinical care and up towards addressing individuals' acute social needs like hunger and the lack of access to food and ultimately to improving community conditions. Now, when we're talking about food and nutrition, this is the elephant in the room. This is the um, construct around which every conversation around food and nutrition policy centers, and that is what's going to happen in the farm bill. The latest farm bill came at the enormous cost of $428 billion. That is so much money that there are many, many, many people who are very highly invested in reducing the amount of money that we spend in the farm bill. The farm bill is set to expire in 2023, which means that uh, Congress is getting to, into action right now on renegotiating the farm bill. And you can see that three quarters of the cost of the farm bill is in nutrition policies. And so if you want to make a cut to the farm bill, the most obvious place to go and the most obvious place to go in particular, if you don't want to anger farmers and potentially um, advocates for rural America is the nutrition programs. And so when we look more deeply into what is included in those nutrition programs, the vast majority of the nutrition program costs are in SNAP or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which was formerly um, called the Food Stamp Program. And so I'm going to start tonight with the question, is SNAP good for us? And does SNAP help to reduce healthcare costs and improve population health? And I will hope in the next seven minutes or so to prove to you that yes, indeed, this is the case. So we know from many, many decades of research that SNAP is very effective at reducing food insecurity rates. And in fact, um, even though it's very difficult to study SNAP, we know that a household that uh, enrolls in SNAP will be 20 to 30% less food insecure than they would have been had they not enrolled in SNAP. Now, because the most food insecure people in the United States are the most likely to enroll in SNAP, and the depth of food insecurity is very high usually when people enroll in SNAP, 54% of all people enrolled in SNAP are still food insecure because it doesn't offer enough money to allow people to stop worrying about being able to afford food, and it doesn't provide enough money to allow people um, in many households to afford healthy food. And we'll come back to that afterwards. But what we do know is that SNAP reduces the rate of food insecurity and reduces the depth of food insecurity. And here's just um, a, some additional information here that shows you that when a household enters SNAP, they tend to be more food insecure than they are six months after they enroll in SNAP, as you can see in the reduction from the light blue bars to the orange bars. It doesn't matter if you're all adults in the household, if you have children in the household, or how severely your food insecurity is when you enroll in, in SNAP, your food insecurity rate gets better. And so SNAP does a really excellent job at supporting food security. And the question is, can it also support health? So I am going to start here with one of my own studies that 
looked at the rate at which people are admitted to the hospital for a case of low blood sugar. Now, low blood sugar is seen almost entirely among people with type 2 diabetes, and it is seen um, when uh, people are, have a mismatch between the amount of diabetes medication they're taking and the amount of physical activity and calories that they are getting in their diet. And one of the things that we observe um, out in the, in the um, nutrition space is that people are much more likely to exhaust the food in their households at the end of the month. That's when people run out of money for food. That's when lines start forming at food banks and food pantries. And so we asked the question, are people more likely to be admitted to the hospital for low blood sugar at the end of the month? Because presumably if you have no food in the house and your caloric intake goes down, you would be more likely to develop low blood sugar events. And what you see here in the green bar is the number of people admitted to California hospitals, all hospitals across the state in a nine year period um, according to the date of the month at which they were admitted to the hospital. And essentially it's flat across the entire month. And in the red bar across at the top, I pulled out only those people who live in the lowest income zip codes in the state of California. So what you see is that in, on every day of the month, people who live in low income uh, zip codes are more likely to experience a severe episode of low blood sugar that requires admission to the hospital. But at the end of the month, in the last week of the month, you see a particular increase, a 27% increase in low blood sugar events. And this really started us thinking about the real acute and quick impact of food insecurity on health outcomes. And so the next question we may, might ask is, if the end of the month stress on being able to afford food is being seen in low blood sugar events, can SNAP make a difference? Can SNAP change this pattern? And in order to study this, we took advantage of what we call a natural experiment, something happening in the real world anyway. Let's study it and see the extent to which it made a difference in this pattern. And the event that we chose to study was a temporary but very substantial increase in SNAP benefits that happened just between May 2009 and October 2013 as part of um, Barack Obama's American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And we asked the question, what happens to that increase in low blood sugar events in the last week of the month? And we used a different data set so that we were looking at a different group of people. And what we saw was that increase in low blood sugar events at the end of the month was observable very similarly prior to 2009, also observable after 2013, but disappeared between May 2019 and October 2013. And we estimated that the emergency department and inpatient hospitalization costs that, that were averted because of that increase in SNAP benefits um, saved about $54 million for commercially assured, insured adults between the ages of 19 and 64. So here is real evidence quantified in dollars that SNAP is able to prevent the development of a very quick acute health outcome. So once we have that data in hand, we started thinking about longer term outcomes that might come from patterns of dietary intake that are sustained over years and decades when people don't have adequate access to healthy food. And one of the places we looked first was to just see if SNAP participants incur less money for healthcare than if they did not enroll in SNAP. And, and indeed, when we look at this um, carefully, what we see is that if you are low income and eligible for SNAP, but choose not to enroll, your healthcare costs are likely to be about $1,400 more per year than somebody who does enroll in SNAP. And in, in fact, this maybe isn't surprising because once people enroll in SNAP, 
they're more likely to report that they're in better health. So this tells us the that approximately um, that people enrolled in SNAP are about 10% more likely to report their, their health is excellent, about 4% more likely to report their health is very good, and less likely to report their health as being only good, fair, or poor compared to people who are eligible for SNAP but choose not to enroll. This is one of my favorite studies that I did not participate in, but, but I love this study. This looked at the rollout of the food stamps program in the mid-1970s. And once SNAP was authorized by Congress at that time, the food stamp program, it was rolled out slowly from county to county. And so um, Hillary Hoynes over at UC Berkeley and, and some of her colleagues looked at the um, health outcomes in state in counties that had um, initiated SNAP compared to those that had not and watched the rollout over time to see changes in childhood health, health outcomes. And what they observed is that if your mother lived in a county that had already implemented SNAP while you were in utero, you were likely to be healthier at birth, you were less likely to develop metabolic syndrome down the line, that's obesity, high cholesterol, cardiovascular disease. You were more likely to reach your educational and academic potential, including more likely to graduate from high school. And most importantly, you were more likely to become economically self-sufficient. This to me is the best example of how investment in prevention and in policies that support better dietary intake very early in life can have very long-term implications on health. These policies make a difference. And so it's not surprising now that SNAP has been looked at in the context of many, many health outcomes. And in every case, what we see is if you're enrolled in SNAP, you are likely to see an improvement in your health outcomes. And it's not just if you are enrolled in SNAP. It is also that the higher your SNAP benefit, the less likely you are to enroll, excuse me, the less likely you are to have an adverse health outcome. And I choose this example of um, pregnancy-related visits to the emergency room, but there are numerous other examples just like this in the literature, where the higher your SNAP benefit, the better off you are from a health perspective. And this is especially interesting because the higher, because people, um, are eligible for a higher SNAP benefit because their incomes are lower, because their household size is higher. And these are things that generally predispose people to poorer health. But if we can get people on SNAP and give them an adequate SNAP benefit, health outcomes are better, not worse. We also know that among older adults, people who enroll in SNAP are much less likely to have to not take their medications because they can't afford them. So people enrolled in SNAP, let's look on the right at the food insecure elderly line, people enrolled in SNAP are much less likely to have to postpone taking their medications because they can't afford them, about 22% of SNAP participants, compared to older adults who are eligible for SNAP but choose not to enroll, about 29% of them report not being able to take their medication because of cost. Again, SNAP leads to better health outcomes. And again, among older adults, if we look at the utilization of healthcare services, older adults enrolled in SNAP are much less likely to enter nursing homes and more likely to age um, in their communities, in their own homes. If they are admitted to the nursing home, it tends to be for shorter stays. They are less likely to be admitted to the hospital. And if they are, they stay in the hospital less time. And they're also less likely to need the emergency room. SNAP is good for you. This is um, really um, interesting and follows up on the study that I did on um, low blood sugar events during the increase in SNAP benefits during the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And what you can see in that middle um, portion there is that Medicaid expenditures across the entire United States really plateaued uh, to a significant degree during the time of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. So we're during an economic recession. We are during a time period when many people predict that health outcomes would get worse. And yet we saw a flattening of Medicaid expenditures during that time. 
SNAP increases were not the only thing that were happening during that time. But again, it's a really tantalizing detail to suggest that these broad scale policies can make a difference. Okay, so there's lots of discussion about how we can increase the public health impact of SNAP because we know it works. We know it is a highly effective health uh, policy. One um, line of thought is around trying to support participation in SNAP for, by um, reducing barriers to participation and decreasing stigma associated with enrollment. This is an enormous problem across the US. The second really strong momentum is, is behind increasing SNAP benefit adequacy, making sure that when people are enrolled in SNAP, they actually do have enough money to buy healthy foods. And in August of 2021, maybe October, the Biden administration um, recalculated SNAP benefits that, um, to an extent that uh, ended up being the largest increase to SNAP benefits uh, since the implementation of the program in the 1970s. So a really substantial increase in benefits, and they were able to do it in such a way that it is not time limited. It is a permanent increase in benefits that applies to everybody involved in SNAP. So an enormous success, and we can talk about that more in the Q&A if people are interested. There are, there's lots of discussion about strengthening the requirements for SNAP food vendors, grocery stores, farmers markets, convenience stores, to have um, uh, healthier food on their shelves. So for example, if you want to be a SNAP authorized retailer, how many fruits and vegetables do you have to stock? Do you have to stock low fat milk or can you stock only whole milk? Uh, can you stock um, can you stock low fat cheese or do you, excuse me can you stock only uh, full fat cheese or do you have to stock low fat cheese instead? Uh, ensuring more retailers are authorized for online SNAP. This is an enormous um, equity issue and tremendous success in this realm as well during the pandemic from a ton of in innovation that happened in rapid time and also with the support of a number of USDA waivers that allowed um, online access to expand from three states um, to 50 states almost overnight. There are initiatives to promote healthier food purchases with SNAP benefits, primarily by giving people money back if they spend their SNAP money on fruits and vegetables. So in many cases, what this means is for every $1 that you spend on SNAP, you get $1 in additional benefits put back on your card. So it's a one-to-one -one match. There are efforts to increase uh, SNAP education, and then there's a big emphasis now on strengthening the public health impact of SNAP during disasters. So these are the policies that we know decrease food insecurity. And because we know they decrease food insecurity, and for many other reasons, we think they're pretty effective at improving health as well. And so I put these on my list of proven to reduce food insecurity and likely to have health outcome, positive health outcomes as well. We've talked about SNAP a lot. SNAP is the largest anti-poverty program in the US and is as effective at reducing food insecurity as the second largest anti-poverty program in the US, which is the Earned Income Tax Credit. Now the Earned Income Tax Credit obviously is only accessible to people who are earning an income. So people on disability, for example, don't have access to EITC. However, among the households that it reaches, it has a substantial impact on food insecurity. Children are able to get um, free, free or reduced price breakfast or lunch at school through the National School Lunch Program, also funded by the USDA. And as of last year, universal school meals are now covered by the state of California for all children to reduce the stigma associated with participation and to make sure that all children have access to healthy school meals uh, while they're in class. WIC is the special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children. It provides access to healthy foods for pregnant and postpartum mothers and children under the age of six also has a proven impact on food insecurity. And because it only offers access to healthy foods, its impact on public health is quite substantial. And we know that WIC benefits um, cause 
improvements in birth outcomes for babies and improvements in academic performance early in life. And finally, in the proven categories, favorable state and local tax policies for low-income households. We'll talk a little bit more about WIC later if there's time. So policies um, that I put in the promising category um, are often in the promising category because they have not been adequately studied, but not necessarily because I think they don't work. I think they probably do many of those, many of these, but they haven't been rigorously studied for their impact on food security and sometimes on downstream health outcomes. And the first I will put in this bucket is um, the charitable food system, our network of food banks and food pantries in the United United States. Uh, other federal nutrition programs, there are many others, and we can talk about those later if people are interested. Other federal policies that reduce um, pressure on the household budget. One of the things we talk about a lot in the context of food insecurity policy is that households are making daily decisions around how to shift around their income, excuse me, shift around their resources to meet their most immediate needs. And if we are able to put money into one part of the food budget, people move money into other parts of the food budget. And that's why programs like LIHEAP, for example, which covers energy assistance uh, or Medicaid expansion, which helps people afford health insurance, when we help support one part of the food budget, people can divert some of their resources to food. And that's why some of these other federal policies look very promising as mechanisms to support food security as well. There's a lot of interest now in cash transfers. Um, there is a really great evidence to suggest that housing subsidies, especially permanent housing subsidies, improve people's food security for the same reason that LIHEAP and Medicaid expansion does. And then I'm gonna spend a minute talking about food as medicine interventions because these are policies uh, where the health system has really said, because the um, health of our population is being so impacted by lack of access to nutritious foods, we see it as our responsibility to get involved um, in improving access to healthy food for our patients. And so this is, um, the definition that I like best of a food is medicine initiative. The integration of a specific food and nutrition intervention in or in close collaboration with the healthcare system. So what that usually means is that physicians or other clinicians are writing a prescription for some kind of food or nutrition that a patient can use back at home. So this may take the form, for example, of a medically tailored meal or a medically tailored grocery, and I'll describe the differences in a minute, or a produce prescription or something that actually happens on site at the hospital. But in all cases, these food as medicine interventions are targeting people who are at high risk of a serious health condition or have a serious health condition like diabetes, like high blood pressure, like hypertension, or they have uh, food insecurity. Now, historically, um, people with HIV and cancer were the first um, patient populations that really had food and nutrition brought into the clinical setting to help support better health outcomes. And so a lot of our experience with this and our understanding of how to do this work well comes from um, the, the initial decades of the HIV epidemic and with efforts to support um, uh, people staying at home through cancer treatment. There's a lot of altruism that I think is involved in health systems that want to be involved in food as medicine interventions. And there's also evidence, very good evidence now, that if we can prescribe food through the clinical setting, like through Medicare and Medicaid, it can improve health outcomes and be cost effective. So this is one of, a, I, one of the micro simulation models or a mathematical model of the impact of um, produce prescriptions that I think is particularly well done. And what it says is if Medicare or Medicaid invested some of their dollars in supporting people's access to fruit, nuts, seeds, vegetables, whole grain, seafood, and plant oils by costing about 30% of the cost of those foods, 
it would result in about $100 billion less in healthcare utilization over the lifetime of the population and would return money back to Medicaid and Medicare and saved healthcare costs after about five years. Most of this is driven by decreases in the development of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. This is considered really cost effective. And so the question is, how do we do it? I'm going to take that on first, and then I'm going to come back and, and, and ask the question, should we be doing it? So most of these um, food as medicine interventions have followed what I like to call the screen and intervene model, where essentially people are asked when they come to the doctor's office or the emergency room or admitted to the hospital if they are food insecure. And if they are food insecure, um, then they are referred to somebody who can help that person enroll in some kind of a program that supports their food and nutrition needs. So the key point here is if we're just asking people about food insecurity and not doing anything about it, it's not going to help people's health outcomes. We have to do an actually really difficult thing, and that is that we have to ask the health system to interact generally with a community-based organization or with a federal nutrition program to provide people with access to long-term in, in some cases, or six weeks or six months, um, um, food. And that's a really difficult place, it turns out, for a health system because this traditionally has been the role of public health, not healthcare. But the idea is if we can make that connection, that we would have improved diet quality, better food security, better clinical satisfaction, and then ultimately we would have improved health and utilization outcomes. So this is the model, and there are many, many places working to make this a reality all over the United States, including at UCSF. So this is how I like to bucket all of the different things we could do in the clinical setting once people report being food insecure. Um, and I'm going to go over each of these um, in turn very briefly, but what I want to emphasize is that these on-site programs are bringing food and nutrition resources onto the hospital grounds or into the clinic. I like to call those on-site programs. Then there's the model of referring out to the community into the charitable food system to provide access to food and nutrition. And then there is um, clinical referral into the federal nutrition programs, for example, by embedding an eligibility worker into the clinical setting. And if we do that in, in clinical referral into SNAP or WIC or into any of our other programs, that meets the criteria of a food as medicine um, intervention as well. And so is there any evidence that this works? Well, I already talked to you about SNAP, so I'm gonna skip SNAP. Um, and I already mostly talked to you about WIC, but I'm going to remind us that we know that WIC works. There's really strong evidence that WIC improves dietary intake, birth outcomes, immunization rates, childhood academic performance. WIC is a really good thing. And in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, the um, WIC benefits specifically for fruits and vegetables has had a substantial increase up to approximately 35 additional dollars per month per person. And so the amount of fruits and vegetables that WIC now covers is actually quite substantial in addition to, to covering many other healthy foods. Medically tailored meals are prepared meals that are tailored to your own medical needs. If you have diabetes, they're diabetes appropriate. If you have kidney disease, they're appropriate for your stage of kidney disease. In most cases, these meals are delivered to the patient's home, but in some cases they are picked up, um, usually at a partnering community-based organization. The largest one for medically tailored meals in San Francisco is Project Open Hand, which you may have heard of. Um, meals on Wheels also does some medically tailored meals as well. And there's relatively strong evidence that this, these interventions can reduce hospital admissions and readmissions. 
that they can lower medical costs and they can improve medication adherence. And this is what has spurred a pilot program in California, funded by California State, to provide medically tailored meals for patients at discharge from the hospital with congestive heart failure. With the question, can we save state funds on readmissions to the hospital by providing these patients with healthy food access at home? Now, obviously providing medically tailored meals is pretty high cost, and it's not something that we need to do for people who are able to store and prepare food on their own. Are there some less intensive interventions? And here's a place where produce prescriptions come into um, enter the ecosystem. And produce prescriptions are generally um, a cash value on either a voucher or a credit card, a debit card, that you can take to your local grocery store or your farmer's market or your convenience store and redeem them for fruits and vegetables. I have my own program in San Francisco called ESF. We've covered over the lifetime of our program about 60,000 households in San Francisco um, to purchase fresh fruits and vegetables at their local stores. And when these are tightly linked to healthcare, these produce prescription programs are food as medicine interventions. There is lots of heterogeneity in what these programs look like across the U.S., how long they provide benefits for, how much the benefits are for. But there's rapidly building evidence that these programs that are relatively inexpensive to implement can improve dietary intake, can improve food security, and have substantial downstream impacts on health outcomes and healthcare costs, exactly like I showed you in that slide a few, um, a few slides ago about saving money in Medicare and Medicaid. And the nice thing about produce prescriptions is that they are suitable for populations with a very low burden of disability and illness that, are, that have the capacity to go and shop at the regular grocery store, that have the capacity to store those foods at home and prepare them into healthy, into healthy meals. Sitting between produce prescriptions and medically tailored meals or medically tailored groceries, these are generally raw ingredients you know, bag of groceries that have to be assembled into meals at home. But these are often provided, for example, by um, local food pantries, um, like you might get um, in San Francisco at the SF Marin Food Bank. These are obviously lower costs to provide than having the prepared meals and are generally targeted to a healthier population that, again, is able to store and prepare meals at home. There's very little health impact data on medically tailored groceries, but there isn't a reason to think that they function differently than other food as medicine interventions, as long as they're able to reduce food insecurity and support dietary intake. And preliminary evidence suggests that medically tailored groceries can do just as well as produce prescriptions and medically tailored meals at supporting food security and dietary intake. And then finally, there are many health systems across the U.S. that are investing in on-site programs like creating a food pantry that's permanently located at the hospital or the clinic, like bringing in a mobile food van from the local food bank once a week, for example, to provide to distribute fruits and vegetables or providing take-home meals at discharge. Now, one of the things that we think about a lot in the context of food policy is that the impact of these policies aren't only felt on the households that receive the food, but we know that the purchasing of food in the community has an enormous impact on labor income and on local economics. And so one of the things that we have tried to quantify is the extent to which changes in our food policy that support SNAP benefits, for example, WIC benefits, also support the local economy and uh, local jobs. And this is one example of us estimating how much the increase to the WIC fruit and vegetable benefit to $35 per participant, which again is what was implemented in the last couple of months, um, by the Biden administration, what kind of contribution does that have to the national economy and to the labor and to labor income? And you can see that here in the purple and the pink text. So because this is a policy discussion, I'm just going to spend my last couple of minutes talking about other policies 
that could be implemented to support this work. And the first is that healthcare funding for many of these food as medicine interventions are coming out of foundation dollars. They're coming out of short-term grants that make it very difficult to sustain this programming over time. And so there's been a real effort to try to transition the funding of these programs to general operating funds of hospital systems rather than grant funding. There's also been a lot of effort to have funding of those programs happen through Medicare and Medicaid and other insurers rather than through the health system itself. And I'll talk about that on the next slide. One of the other things that we know is that with very few exceptions, if you enroll, if you are enrolled in Medicaid, you are also eligible for SNAP because the eligibility for Medicaid is tighter or more restrictive than the um, eligibility criteria for SNAP. And so um, there's very little reason for somebody to be enrolled in Medicaid, which every hospital and every clinic knows which of their patients is enrolled in Medicaid. There's very, there's almost no reason for somebody to be enrolled in Medicaid and not to be enrolled in SNAP. SNAP is an entitlement program. You are entitled to SNAP benefits just by virtue of your being a citizen of the U.S. if you meet certain eligibility requirements, just like you are entitled to drive on our roads in the U.S. if you meet eligibility requirements for, in that case, of having a driver's license. So there has been a big push to say hospital systems know who's on Medicaid. All those people who are on Medicaid should be enrolled in SNAP. In terms of sustainable sources of programming for our local community programs that are providing the food, there has been a lot of effort to integrate that funding into Medicare and Medicaid. At the state level, this is happening by asking for waivers from the federal government to allow Medicaid costs to cover food and nutrition programs. There is um, a medically tailored home delivered meal pilot act that is on the table from Representative McGovern. Um, and then there's a lot of efforts to add funding for medically tailored meals and groceries to the farm bill. There's also a lot of effort to make sure that the food that's going through the charitable food system is as healthy as possible. And there are uh, state and local initiatives to improve the, um, the healthfulness of the food that people are able to purchase at the local level. For example, um, by supporting food banks uh, locally to purchase healthier food items. And finally, there are a number of policy levers for federal nutrition programs, and most of these I have already talked about. Here are the things that exiting the pandemic have a lot of excitement around them that I haven't mentioned. The first is a universal basic income. These are being tested in communities like Stockton is the most famous example. The universal basic income construct is based on the, um, the observation that people are able to figure out how to budget for themselves with a big pot of money a small pot of money in most cases than they are if we give $227 for SNAP and $118 for energy and $432 for rent. The constraints that that type of um, um, the constraints on people's budget has is very difficult for households. It also means that if you want to enroll in, uh, if you want to receive all of these benefits, you have to go and enroll in multiple different programs using multiple different systems. And it's very difficult um, for people who are living in poverty. The universal basic income construct gets rid of all of that and says, we'll just give it to you in one lump sum. And you um, would be responsible for budgeting that to rent, food, transportation, et cetera. There's a lot of enthusiasm, again, on co-enrollment of benefits, one-stop shopping. You go to one place and we are able to enroll you in Medicaid and SNAP and LIHEAP and, um, and put you on a housing voucher waiting list. That has a lot of bureaucratic complexity behind it. California in particular has been pretty poor at supporting co-enrollment, but there's a lot of enthusiasm for those initiatives. And finally, one of the things that we learned most importantly from the pandemic in this space is that we have a mechanism 
to very rapidly and efficiently support school children during the times when they are out of school. So there's long been the observation that children are much more likely to be food insecure, I'm sorry, households are much more likely to be food insecure if there's children in the household during the summer months, during spring break, during winter vacation. And that's because the children are losing access to the lunch and sometimes lunch, breakfast and snack that they otherwise would be receiving in school. And now the costs of those meals um, are falling to the, to the parents to cover. There have been many attempts at fixing this problem in many different ways, but one of the things that got rapidly expanded during the pandemic and ended up being so effective was to just put the dollar value of the school meals onto people's SNAP benefit. And so um, you could just take that SNAP benefit card to the grocery store and buy a meal for your child instead. It was done almost overnight for people who are already enrolled in SNAP and for people who are not already enrolled in SNAP, the state governments were able to mail a debit card to the home that was loaded with the dollar value of the school meal. And that may have been um, one of the most effective policies during the pandemic and one that there's a lot of enthusiasm to continue into the future. The um, increase in SNAP benefits was also thought to be highly effective during the pandemic at holding down food insecurity rates, as were the stimulus checks. In low-income households, food was the number one and, and or number two um, product uh, for which people spent their stimulus checks. Most of that money went directly back into the local economy very rapidly for food. So I want to end by saying that everything that I talked today is about filling an acute social need, the lack of the lack of ability to afford food. These acute needs we can effectively fill through many of the initiatives that I talked about today, but they aren't getting at the underlying root causes of these problems, these underlying causes that we call the social determinants of health which the CDC defines as the fundamental drivers of the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. These are those underlying social and economic conditions that are predisposing certain populations to food insecurity, lack of educational opportunities, lack of employment opportunities, mass incarceration, systemic racism, if we are really to fix this problem, we are going to have to start moving even further upstream away from just uh, addressing those acute social needs and to really authentically addressing those social determinants of health. So then we ask this question, how can a healthcare system be involved in addressing food insecurity, not as an acute social need, but as a social determinant of health. And I will give you two examples um, that I think are important. One is to implement an anchor institution initiative, which UCSF is, has done and is, and is um, currently implementing. Anchor institution, uh, anchor institutions are institutions that tend not to move location. So they can't be picked up and moved somewhere else um, if local tax policies change, for example. And because they are anchored into, the, into a geographic region, they play a really vital role in their local community and their economy. And so what anchor institutions are able to do is leverage their economic power, their human resources, and their intellectual resources to improve the long-term health and social welfare of their communities by buying local, by, uh, by offering employment opportunities to people locally, by supporting leadership positions of people who are in the community and from the community. This is how we start as a healthcare system to really transform these social determinants of health. It is very hard work. And the second point is to leverage our voice as a health system to allow policymakers and decision makers to understand the very important health impact of structural changes to support food security. So let me give you an example here. Hunger advocates for many, many, many years have argued for expansion of SNAP benefits. But what happened in the most recent momentum for expanding SNAP benefits wasn't that the hunger advocates 
continued to say the same things they have been doing for so long, although they have and they've gotten more powerful. But the health system stood up to say, if you reduce access to healthy food, if you reduce SNAP benefits, that's going to cause an economic drain for us. We are going to have to pay for that as providers of health care. And so we as a health system ask you not to change, uh, to not to reduce uh, SNAP benefits. This had enormous power. And I think part of the momentum towards permanently expanding SNAP access, uh, excuse me, SNAP benefit rates in the last 18 months was about health systems finally being able to use their voice to say this matters to us as well. So um, do I think that health systems should be funding and providing food? I actually do not. I think it's a public health problem. And I think public health is better able to do this work. And yet, as a health system, we know, and as a clinician, I know that our patients can't today afford access to healthy food in some cases. And it is very difficult, if not impossible, for me as a physician to support somebody in losing weight, in not developing diabetes in supporting the dietary intake of their children if they don't have access to food. What I can do right now as a provider is I can provide medication, but medications have side effects, medications are expensive, and much of that work can be done with food instead. So in the short term, we have to have policies and practices for clinicians and health systems to get involved in this policy work. And hopefully over time, health systems can, uh, can exit this space and allow our policies and programs to do the work instead. With that, I am going to um, unshare my slides and hopefully there are questions or comments. Um, and please uh, feel free to challenge me on any of this. Thank you so much, Hillary. That was fantastic. Um, I learned so much, even though I've heard you talk before, it's always amazing to, to hear all the updates and everything that's going on. Um, I'm gonna start with a, a question from the group. Um, so in you know, really a, a politically divided country um, where we see things sometimes determined state by state, are uh, food policies strong enough at the federal level to withstand um, any potential changes to sort of uh, moving things more toward the state versus, you know, how much of, of um, policy is also determined at the state level. And I might add on to that, like anything we should know about California in particular, which I realize is a big question. WIC is administered as a block grant to states and states have a lot of flexibility and how to operationalize that program. One of the things that has meant is that WIC in many states is much less powerful as a supporter of food security and better health outcomes. There's much less, excuse me, there's much more standardization of SNAP. Although SNAP also, um, SNAP is a federal program, um, but it is administered at the state level. Actually in California, it's administered at the county level. So there's lots of variation um, in SNAP eligibility requirements, for example, county by county in San Francisco and, excuse me, county by county in California and state by state um, in, the rest of the, in the rest of the country. I happen to think that um, there are many local policies that support food security that augment what we have in the SNAP system. But SNAP is by far the biggest program and has the biggest scope and scale. There's everything else pales in terms of local initiatives. Um, food banking, which is enormous in the United States, but it pales in scope and scale uh, to SNAP. WIC is the second largest federal nutrition program, also pales in scope and scale um, compared to SNAP. So SNAP is the answer to food security. We know that we can eliminate food security with the SNAP program, at least among people who are eligible. It's just going to take more money to do that. Um, I'm not sure that exactly answers your question, but there are um, in the state of California, we've been very generous with um, augmenting SNAP benefits, for example, there is a small program to allow people who are not citizens of the US to get SNAP-like um, benefits. We've raised the, um, um, we've, we've done all kinds of things to make it easier to enroll in SNAP in California. Thank you. Um, 
And next question from the group. Um, can you talk a little bit about stakeholders in this big issue? So specifically kind of what sectors stand to benefit or lose if policies are enacted that reduce food insecurity? One of the biggest players in this space is actually our big box grocery stores, our Walmarts um, and Costco's. An enormous uh, millions and millions of millions of hundreds of millions of dollars of SNAP benefits are spent at big box stores in particular every year. When people lose access to SNAP benefits, their total expenditures on food goes way down. And so it is an important economic driver, an economic benefit for these stores. We also know that um, people spend a lot of money in their SNAP benefits on sugar-sweetened beverages. This is a particular problem for health outcomes. Now, many people who aren't on SNAP are also spending a lot of their money on sugar-sweetened beverages, but there is a lot of conversation about the appropriateness of allowing SNAP benefits to be used to purchase foods that have no nutritional value. And so that's an important stakeholder group. There are, of course, um, food banks and food pantries that are important stakeholder groups and other anti-hunger organizations. And to some extent, um, farmers have become um, involved in this um, issue as well. Those are the primary stakeholders, I would say. And are we seeing those big box stores actually come forward and, and support programs like SNAP? It is very quiet. Um, but um, particularly when we start talking about SNAP restrictions on certain foods, we hear those voices at the table. Yes. Yeah. Um, another question from the group. Has there been any progress on incentivizing the farming industry to grow healthier crops? Thinking about the farm bill as well. There have been a lot of USDA initiatives to support the uh, to support farming of specialty crops. Um, and to um, provide um, maybe less emphasis on commodity crops. A lot of times in this context, the real question is around subsidizing corn and whether subsidies of corn are, um, are increasing the amount of high fructose corn syrup that's being put into ultra-processed foods and contributing to um, the dietary crisis that we're having in the United States. Many are, uh, economists have argued to me that it isn't the subsidies on corn that make such, make such a big difference. It probably, we would most likely have just as much ultra-processed food without the subsidies on corn. What is a problem probably is that we don't equally subsidize other healthy foods, other fruits and vegetables. And so more people are talking about that. And the USDA is making some, um, some investments in subsidizing those specialty crops. Mm -hmm. Let's see, another question around if there are any studies that look at food uh, security and the relationship to housing costs. We actually did um, a study that looked at food insecurity in the context of um, cost of living in general in an area. And it was a very nuanced finding, but what we found was that in regions where, where rent costs in particular, it wasn't about um, overall cost of living, it really was about the cost of housing. In the places where housing costs were high, the quality of food tended to be much lower in food, or the, it was in this case, the quality of food purchases, um, because people's food budgets were more squeezed. And so therefore they had to invest in a less healthy, less expensive food product. This is one reason why there's been a lot of discussion um, about whether there should be cost of living adjustments to SNAP benefits. Um, I, I don't think that is likely to happen. I think um, generally what happens when we start modeling out the impact of those policies is that we move more money towards the West Coast and the Northeast, when in fact it is the Southeast where the rates of food insecurity are the highest. And so probably it would be one of those policies that might have the unintended consequence 
of, um, of um, having a disparate, impact, disparate negative impact, particularly on black households. So I, I don't think that's likely to happen. It's also less likely to happen because there is a lot of advocacy around SNAP that comes from um, um, the, the farmers in the Southeast portion of the United States. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, one other question from the group around when we look at the WIC uh, $35 monthly increase, as well as the um, increase in SNAP benefits um, uh, that the Biden administration achieved, what percentage approximately increase are we actually talking about? The um, WIC, uh, depending on whether you're a child or an adult, the approximately the, the fruit and vegetable benefit in WIC um, was about $12 previously per month. Think about that, $12 per month on food. That's, excuse me, on fruits and vegetables. That's about $3 per week. So we're adding $35 to that $12 benefit. So that was an enormous increase. Mm -hmm. The increase in the SNAP benefits was about a 30% um, increase to if you were receiving the maximum benefit and uh, approximately 30% increase in SNAP benefits is, is, what, is what we see with the recalculation that the Biden administration You alluded to this, but I'm curious um, your thoughts around how much we need to have policies that incentivize fruits and vegetables versus just increasing the income to allow people that option. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, first, let me say that the average diet quality of an American in general is horrible. There, it is true that low-income Americans have a poor quality diet than Americans overall, but poor quality diets in the United States are not only about affordability. They're also about marketing, they're also about our formulation of foods in a way that makes them, um, many people argue that um, our foods are addictive. Uh, there are many, um, the, the enormous access to very calorically dense foods, for example, from fast food restaurants, there are many things that contribute to poor diets in the United States. So what I like to remind people is that addressing the affordability challenge is necessary, but not sufficient. Meaning that if we were to eliminate food insecurity in the US overnight, we would probably decrease disparities substantially, but there would still be a diet problem in the United States because it's not all about affordability. So then you ask about um, um, what about um, housing costs? You know, could we make a substantial impact on this by housing costs? And the answer to that is likely yes. And again, it comes from that, what the economists call fungibility, that if we can reduce housing costs, people have more money to spend on basic necessities. And this is what we see over and over. When we give people, for example, a stimulus check or a universal basic income, the number one or number two thing that people spend that on is generally on food. And what are the other things? Rent, other basic necessities, transportation to work, such as car repairs. These are very basic things that people move around in their budgets. And if it's housing that people need uh, and we provide money for housing, then people will be able to divert some of that money for food. And we see that happening. One of the ways we see, um, one of the um, examples of that is that um, a, another natural experiment that states that expanded Medicaid saw reductions in food insecurity rates that were greater than states that did not expand Medicaid, which is really strong evidence that when people are spending less money on healthcare, they're able to spend more money on food. And again, when you spend more money on food, you can afford higher quality food, which tends to be healthier food. Wonderful. Thank you so much for a wonderful presentation and for, for answering our questions. Um, and thank you to everyone in the audience for your attendance and your participation and your questions. And um, Thank, thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.